happy 2022 to all of you listening, and welcome to Battleline Podcast, Best of Badass Female Guests, Part 2, featuring Alana Duffy, Pat Smith, Jade Strzok, Cheryl Dolts, and Holly McKay. This is Part 2 in our two-part series, maybe maybe uh, more to come, of Best of Badass Female Guests, um, because one just wasn't enough. We've had some awesome females on the show and uh, yeah, hopefully this is a really cool way for you guys to start the new year. I think it's going to be a great year. And um, when I say that, people will be worried about all the stuff going on. But I, when I say a great year, the stuff that's within our control, not the stuff outside of your control. We can't really change what's going on in the news, what's going on in the country, what's going on in the world. But you, of course, do have the power to change yourself every day and to be your best self every day. And I think that's the message that we really do try to send with this podcast each and every week. Um, before I get into everything, I, I wanted to mention some really big news, um, two, two really important deaths. Um, you know, I'd say unfortunate deaths, but, but unfortunate sometimes sounds like it was before, uh, way before their time or something. And, and these guys were, um, you know, they, they could have lived a little bit longer, but, but these were not, um, you know, lives cut short or anything, but two true American heroes we wanted to celebrate. First and foremost, I should say, uh, a guy that I had the pleasure of interviewing and uh, also meeting a couple of times when I worked at uh, my former company at a book signing event we did and also on the podcast. That's none other than the founder of SEAL Team 6, Dick Marcinko, Richard Dick Marcinko. You guys know him, the uh, rogue warrior and uh, author. What really one of the first authors, I would say, in the special operations military commu uh, community who was doing it way before a lot of these guys that we have on the show. He was the pioneer in that field. And he is a guy who probably uh, inspired countless other men and women to join the military and other men to join special operations military forces, whether it was becoming a Navy SEAL like him or a Green Beret or an Army Ranger. And as many of you know, I mean, you don't need me to tell you the backstory, but starting SEAL Team 6, there were, there were not six SEAL teams at the time. That was uh, creative on, on his part of, of saying, you know, making things look more exquisite than they were because there were only, I don't even remember exactly. I think there were only like three SEAL teams at the time, but there were not six. But now we know that there's, there's many more than that. And the SEAL teams have expanded much more. And uh, he's a guy who's really celebrated by everyone. I know there's, there's sometimes that inner branch uh, rivalry and, and sometimes legitimate and sometimes it's more than just rivalry, but I feel like whether it's special forces guys that, that I know or Rangers or, Marsak, uh, most most people had only great things to say about the legend Dick Marcinko. So rest in peace to Dick Marcinko. I, I see that his son is on Twitter and I reached out to him. It may be too soon and I did say that, but at some point we'd love to have him on and have him share stories of his dad, a legend in the community. And the other person that I have to mention is Gary Bykirk, uh, a Medal of Honor recipient and also a Green Beret. Uh, I'll read a little bit. This is from Democrat and Chronicle, which is a local paper in the New York region that he's from. Gary Bykirk, the U.S. Army medic whose heroism one April morning in Vietnam made him one of Rochester's greatest military heroes of the 20th century, died December 26th at the age of 74. The cause was cancer. 
Sergeant Bykirk in April 1970 was 22 years old and serving as chief medical officer for a special forces team and more than 2,000 villagers in Kantum province in South Vietnam. At 3 a.m. April 1st, North Vietnamese forces launched a major attack against Camp Doc Siang, spraying rockets and gunfire across the fortified compound. Sergeant Bykirk and his 15-year-old bodyguard, a Vietnamese, Vietnamese boy named Dao, dashed repeatedly into the line of fire to help those who were wounded despite their own wounds, which were significant. Sergeant Bykirk was hit twice, the second time a devastating blow that left shrapnel in his spine, and he said, I remember feeling like I'd gotten kicked by a horse. Dow carried him to the medical tent for aid, and then the two returned to the field. Dow was killed, protecting Sergeant Bykirk from a rocket attack. Sergeant Bykirk was struck again, this time a gunshot to the back. Finally, he was evacuated by helicopter, and he quotes, uh, not many people know what it's like to be under fire and then hear someone yell out, medic, except those who are medics. And they don't know what takes place inside of you that causes you to get up and go when everyone else is hiding. Sergeant Bykirk received the Congressional Medal of Honor in a ceremony at the White House October 15, 1973. By then, he'd been out of the service for two years and learned to walk again through extensive rehabilitation. And there's more to read on here, but... I think that really sums it up, and uh, rest in peace to both both of those gentlemen, of course, uh, Dick Marcinko and Sergeant Gary Bykirk. I always feel like it's important that we mention that on this show because there are those personalities in the special operations military community who everybody knows, and actually Dick Marcinko is one of those, but these guys like Sergeant uh, Gary Bykirk, I, I feel like just from reading, he was a legend in his own community in New York, but it's not a name all of us have heard. So when these guys pass, I want all of us to, to know these names and to know their stories. There's no reason that, that we shouldn't know their names and their stories. I, I, I've said it before on, on past shows and without going into, you know, people, but sometimes we celebrate uh, people I, I wish we wouldn't in this country. And like, these are the type of people we should be celebrating. So that's why it's really important to me and to Chris and, and the show at large to get the word out about not just the deaths of these guys, but their heroes and what they did. All right, well, with that, before we get into uh, these these excerpts themselves from previous episodes with some of our great greatest guests that we've had on the podcast, I do want to talk about Ned. Ned is helping so many people, guys actually in the military community who do have joint issues and, and trouble with uh, recuperating from certain things are seeing tremendous results. The way that I really put it is that one of the most fundamental things in, in your life is recovery in terms of, you know, we, we need to get exercise, you need to be in motion, you need to be getting out there. Um, but then if you're looking to grow muscle, if you're looking to get better, you know, like uh, Chad, who we had on the podcast, uh, Chad Solomon, who, who's an Ironman, like get better on those times, you have to be getting a good night's sleep and CBD really, really helps you with that. So it's it's fundamental. If, if you're not getting a good night's sleep, that's crucial. Think about it. You're um you're really not growing muscle while you're in the gym. You're tearing down that muscle, or while you're out there running like Chad or swimming, you're you're growing muscle as you sleep. So if you're not getting a good night's sleep, you're not going to get great results. And there's so many other benefits to CBD as well in terms of helping guys with anxiety, post traumatic stress, 
And then there's, there's even the bigger benefits that we're hearing about, and those studies are coming about with things like Alzheimer's. And that's why it's great that Ned works with a team of respected doctors that you could check out, doctors like Caroline Leaf, Dr. Christian Gonzalez, and Dr. Will Cole, because uh, it's a newer product, you know, it's a few years deep, but the thing is, we're learning more and more with more studies each year, and that's why Ned does full, full transparency and shares third-party lab reports who farms their products and all of that, their extraction process, as we're learning more and more about CBD's benefits. And, and some of that is even from guys that write into us at battlelinepodcast at gmail.com, like that Marine who wrote to us and had extensive history of injuries, and Ned really helped him out. So I, I really urge you guys to check it out. We're getting so many people who have been subscribers now of Ned or checking out Ned, and, and it's a big part of their regimen now is taking that full-spectrum hemp. And they always hook it up for us, so they have all different types of deals. When you go to helloned.com slash battleline, that's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash battleline to receive a discount off your order. Thank you, Ned, for sponsoring the show and offering our listeners a natural remedy for some of life's most common health issues. Also, this may be the Best of Badass Female episode but uh, we're talking about balls here. <laughs> That's right. Why am, why am I talking about balls? Well, for, for one, our audience is crazy. When I go on like Spotify and I see the demographics, we're like a 95 or something percent male audience. It's just the way it is. I know there's some loyal female uh, listeners out there, but we are just predominantly a male audience. I mean, it just kind of happens when you have a show about guys in the special operations military community. That's that's kind of our target demo. So it makes sense that we've uh, hooked up with the great folks over at Manscaped. Proper grooming requires precision engineered tools. Not only do a man's sensitive areas require it, but hygiene demands it. Manscaped is the global leader in men's below-the-waist grooming the skin-safe technology are set back from the edge 3 millimeters and precision-engineered for maximum confidence while trimming below the waist. Trimming in the shower is also easy and creates less mess. Comfortably operate the Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer in wet or dry conditions. That's right, the Lawnmower 4.0. That's really new for them because up until recently, they were promoting out there the Lawnmower 3.0 and they've made some great advancements on that. So visit battlelinepodcast.com slash manscaped to get a free pair of boxers, a toiletry bag, and free shipping with your purchase of the Performance Package 4.0. Uh, there's so many podcasts I listen to now that uh, are sponsored by Manscaped, and everybody speaks so highly of them, and I do as well. So if you've yet to uh, you know use a promo code for any of those podcasts that you listen to, uh, this is your chance to get a great discount from us uh, with them. So, so go there now, battlelinepodcast.com slash manscaped. You are not going to regret it. And the uh, the woman in your life or uh, the man in your life, whichever way you go, we do not discriminate here. They will greatly appreciate it. So battlelinepodcast.com slash manscaped. Let's go. From Omaha, Nebraska to New York City, from planet Earth 
to Extraterrestrial Life in Space, a podcast with no equal, engaged in unconventional warfare through your speakers and headphones. This is a show about embracing the suck, conquering your demons, and finding God in the face of adversity. Chris Tonto Peranto. Which is on. Motherfucker, I'm going to shoot you in the face. Ian Scotto. You know, Ian and I have been dating for a long time. You are now tuned into the Battle Line Podcast. Switches on. Do you not get fired the fuck up every time you hear that intro? Because I do. Damn, that is a good intro. And uh, I say that because I certainly didn't create it. I mean, I, look, I, I put the audio together with it of uh, of Alex Jones. <laughs> Ian and I have been dating for a long time, like that part. But uh, in terms of the actual music, that is none other than our friend Jimmy Allen, who was one on uh, one of the early episodes which you could look back in the archive on. And, and for those who don't know, Jimmy is the primary songwriter and guitar guitarist for Against All Will. And of course, Puddle of Mud. Most of those great Puddle of Mud hits were written or co-written by Jimmy Allen. He's the man. So I always have to shout that out every now and again uh, when I can. And uh, yeah, with that, we're going to get right into our first excerpt. This is from episode 105 with Sergeant First Class Ilana Duffy telling you the entire story of her TBI and amputation of her leg, uh, which she tells with a smile on her face. And in classic military humor, uh, I guess, attitude. Because for most people, this is obviously traumatic. But you just when you're around as many military people as I have been uh, blessed to be around, you realize that they could kind of laugh about anything, even something as... as traumatizing as this. So let's get right into it. This was a great episode. Love having Ilana in studio from episode 105. Once again, Sergeant First Class Ilana Duffy. I was helping out one of our other teams, which was uh, trying to figure out why the oil fields kept getting attacked. Like, here's a clue, guys. It's probably the insurgency. But I I don't know. Uh, We'll go. We'll go ask around. Um, and so we went to, we, we were, uh, we were out at one of the oil fields and then actually, as we were coming back to actually get the helicopter back down to Balad, uh, the, uh, there was slow traffic on that. And it's, if there's one main road that really goes from, goes Baghdad all the way up through the middle and then up to, um, like Mosul and, and that area. So, uh, we were on that road. And, uh, we, uh, there was one of those Toyota sedans weaving in and out of traffic. We thought it was suspicious. They had been, uh, the, the guys, um, our, our convoy, I was in the lead truck in the convoy. They were blowing, you know, blowing the whistle, fired the warning shots, like all the, you know, trying to get people to move out of the way. Cause we were actually behind a. Uh, a truck full of like workers leaving leaving the day so there was probably like eight people in the bed of this truck uh and then that car weaving in and out and we couldn't see around anybody 
And because the convoys all move, you know, like 40, 50 miles an hour, however much the add-on armor of these, uh, because we were not in the days of the MRAP or even yeah. like factory, factory mounted armor. Um, it was like, what can you weld on? And like, <laughs> like we were getting like commercial rhino liner and trying to spray it on the floors so that in case you got blown up, maybe it would get caught in something. Yeah. And, uh, we, um, and then, so, and then just bad luck, the car weaves in, it was not a vehicle. It was not a, a V-bid like we thought it was, but car weaves in, uh, truck of workers swerves and uh we were just close and there was no way to stop that uh our truck with all that armor on it so we slam into this uh jingle truck uh of workers they hit the sedan the sedan actually hits a front loader which had been the cause of the backup uh, a construction vehicle that's poor guy was just trying to take home uh, and, um, I mean, three Iraqis ended up killed. I get bounced, bounced around the back. Cause at this point I'm probably like 107 pounds. Cause it's hot, yeah. hot, hot summer, hot girl summer in Iraq. <laughs> and, uh, so, um, and then like, so I'm like, and every time I would go out, I'm like, a, I'm, so I'm, I'm like a buck oh seven and, uh, and wearing like 70 pounds of gear so uh no matter what happens like i am exactly like the truck i've got all this add-on crap and i just get <laughs> momentum and keep going so um i get bounced around in the truck and my boot gets caught on the uh on the metal in the back of the uh of the passenger seat and just twist my ankle around and of course the closest base that we got i was like man my ankle kind of hurts um but you know there's also dead people around so yeah. we should probably do something about this uh and so by the time and so as we're loading back up i was like man this really hurts hmm that's weird and so when we get does it hurt or you or, or is it to the point where you it's not unusable that came later it was not unusable uh be, also my my boots were pretty tight uh oh. so like you know uh, i when we get to um uh it is amazing what you can do with really tight boots by the way like just super tight uh because we get to the the neck the closest uh american outpost and they didn't it was small they didn't have like imaging they didn't have a mri they didn't even have an x-ray and so the guy just kind of looks at it and because my boot had been so damn tight like nothing was swollen um and uh, he was like, oh, it's like it's it's already starting to kind of bruise up, but like you know, it's probably sprained, whatever." Uh, turns out, take I, some take yeah, some aspirin. Take, like, here you go. Here's some Motrin. Take a knee. Motrin. Drink some water. Take a you know, rub some dirt on it, and we'll see you later. And uh, I went. Um, uh, so you know, like the I get on the helicopter, I go back to Balad, and I was like, I don't know, they told me it was sprained, like, I guess I'm cool, and still going out on missions, and still doing... You're just, you got no excruciating pains, nothing at all, it's just, it's just hurt, it, it just, it it's just, just like a, like a it, throb. Yeah, it just sucked, uh, and, okay. uh, you know, they were like, you know, don't run for, like, a couple of weeks, and, um, and I was like, well, that's fine, because, <laughs> like, I'm, I'm just, like, 
I'm going out on 17 hour missions. I don't really have a lot of time to run. Uh, and then of course, you know, later my, my unit was like, Oh, before we all go home, let's do a PT test. Um, because that makes, <laughs> that makes so much sense. That is 18th Airborne Corps right there. That is that is Fort Bragg mentality of like, oh, let's do a PT test while we're still in country. Like, this would be great. Then we don't have to do it when we get home. And it's reasonable. Um, and, you know, maybe you won't get rocketed in the middle of it and have to go into a bunker. Uh, I was like, we get incoming, like, several day, several times a day. Like, if we're on this PT test, like... There is a chance that during the 15 minutes that everybody's running a circle around the block uh, that we might get rocketed. Who knows? What do you do then? Is this in the regulation? I don't know. <laughs> so we uh, um, and that that really stunk. And that's when I was like, wait a minute, maybe this is more than a sprain. Okay. Um, but the uh, so I'm still but I'm other than that, I'm still just tying my boot really tight and, uh, you know, taking some pills and going out on 17 hour missions. And, you know, I just have the giant Samoans from the 142 infantry kicking the gates and the doors yep. and stuff like that. Cause they would leave like size, like 19 boot prints on the, on these, <laughs> on these doors. And it was amazing. Um, I, I love those guys. Uh, but the, um, and then, so a couple of weeks, maybe two weeks later. So I'm still like limping around. Uh, and then two weeks later, uh, I had just talked to a guy maybe a week before who was, who had told me, Hey, on this road, uh, in the next like week or so, there's going to be, um, a string of roadside bombs, string of IEDs. All right, cool. Report that up. Uh, here's the approximate locations. The, uh, route clearing guys found two of them. Um, and so, uh, we found the third the hard way, uh, because, or as I like to say, we actually found it the easy way because like nobody had to dig it up. Um, it's like when I was talking to one of the British disposal guys who, uh, he had lost both of his legs and he was, he was a bomb, he was part of the bomb disposal unit. And I was like, oh, how good are your job? were you and he was like actually i mean we found it <laughs> so um and by the way it's like that i have to point out between you being like very i don't joking about losing your leg and it's it's so military humor it really is which i've <laughs> i've realized from being around people like you chris and people like mike schlitz like you are not at all embarrassed about this injury like you're you're proud of oh, what you did you yeah know, no so. i will um i i i get like uh like like small children who like are staring at my at my leg and and uh i will take it off and <laughs> i will take off my foot and hand it to them uh that'd be good for halloween oh, oh halloween is, is baller um I actually just went to Pirate Day at the Ren Fair, but I had... I saw the pictures on Instagram yeah. at Lanner Pants on Instagram. Do you, yeah. Do you have a Do you have a wooden prosthetic like a pirate? Leg? I don't. You should get uh, one. If you I'm, don't, you I'm need gonna to get print one. one. I'm gonna print yeah. one. I was actually going nice. to use uh, like my I have a my rock climbing foot is actually about a third of the size of uh, oh, of a regular cool. foot, so I can just make a casing that goes around that. 
and yeah, it's a peg. Cool. Nice. And um, I mean, I I nicknamed my friggin' leg Peggy. Uh, <laughs> it is. So, it, 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 like it it's is. a thing. Yeah. So yeah, getting back to yeah. of so, course. So the bomb goes off. Uh, wow, we yeah. find we find it. Um, uh, which uh, and it was like a little bit later when I was like, wait a minute, like what what was the grid for that? Like, hold on a second reference back in my notes oh wait, i told so you you were wait you were you weren't on the route clearing team the route no. clearing team had already cleared route and they clearing sent you... had found two out of the three so and so for some reason why did your command sit besides they just I, said I, I, don't give me i know the comment i get but what was there what was the mission that you had to accomplish to go back out on that road on that specific day knowing that you had act intel that had already been actioned that hey man there is she, she was spot on we found two IEDs, we, and you know, it wasn't a science fact then. It's still not a science finding them all. Why on earth did they send you back out on that fucking road? That's just, that's ridiculous. Again, we, we're past ridiculousness. We're into ridiculousness. Well, we could get into some of the failures of how Intel gets passed around. Okay, I just, I just, I, was there, was there some, somebody... Was like, there another person you had to go talk to? Or was there some like, we got to go talk to this guy on this fucking day. Let's, was, who gives a shit if they're supposed to be IEDs and they already found two? Let's go to put them out on the... I mean, was it that important it was, they couldn't I, have waited? The, the logic must have been something along the lines of maybe they just never got around to placing the third one. Uh, <laughs> like something like that. Because, um, and, uh, you know, one... Because and and Balad was a huge base, so oh yeah, you know, Anaconda the, is monstrous. Yeah. Oh yeah, I, I so remember, the the yeah. uh, the the engineers who were on the route clearing may not have uh, told the infantry guys who were running the convoy okay. to go out and do checkpoints, and then they were taking me to go sure. and talk to my dude, and uh, like while they're on the checkpoint, they would just like. Uh, like a small team would t come and like, you know, makes it no I, 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 that or makes whatever. Sense. Okay. So okay. like, um, so, uh, either word didn't get around or something. We get hit by this IED. Uh, luckily it had been so hastily dropped that no one, uh, at the time got seriously hurt enough to medevac anyone. Uh, okay. like the gunner, my gunner had, uh, some shrapnel in his hand, but it had, uh, it the the timing was off, so whoever okay. was the trigger man had uh, not taken physics, and uh, <laughs> like the and it was aimed like into the sky, so it was mostly just shrapnel and stuff like that. Um, and uh, but the blast wave is sure. uh, what got me because it was a, it was it was a large IED. Uh, it was just. Uh, lucky and unlucky at the same time because it was super sure. lucky that we didn't get actually hit by the the main projectile, but it was super unlucky that I happened to be sitting at the exact spot that had a gap in the add-on armor uh, oh, and leaning God. forward just enough to get the full blast wave like and looking the right direction that I get it right in the face and then blown backwards and my head slams into something else and... Uh, even wearing a helmet is still kind of sucks because then it you just rattles, like, your brain rattles. No, yeah. it rattles your freaking brain. It yeah. Is, yeah no, so just, and nobody was looking at blast injuries at this point. No, um, no you're right. So you're right. Uh, yeah. unless you actually had like something sticking out of your head, uh, they were like, okay, you're probably <laughs> cool. 
uh, or like they could confirm that because I I was wearing I was being good and wearing like my dark sunglasses. I was wearing yeah. my eye protection. Yeah. But um, you know, and I mean, I was wearing some uh, some of those defective earplugs, maybe. Um, <laughs> didn't really make a difference. But yeah, three uh, M's awesome. Three yeah. M, you guys rock. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will appreciate the settlement. But the uh, <laughs> so they, um, I was I had like fluid coming out of my ears and stuff. Wow. But at that time, af- after the blast, immediately yeah, they were they were just like eh, maybe it's um. Uh, it, maybe, maybe you, you went, blew an eardrum. Maybe you went swimming. Yeah, at the, at, you know, at a, just got some water in the ear and just knock it out. Uh, yeah, the uh, and it's so nobody's looking. Nobody's looking for this. And of course, I was petrified because all of a sudden I don't know anybody's name. Oh wow! I'm like reading the the names of Samoans off of their friggin' uh, so like you know my my um, truck command like the guy. In the passenger seat, uh, his last name was Tukuboyatu, and I'm like trying to read it so that he doesn't know that uh, that I can't tell who anybody is. And um, yeah, that worked out well. Jeez. So, uh, but and but you know, I I didn't want to get pulled off the road. I was like, I I love my job. I love what I'm doing. Um, I am terrified that I'm going crazy. Uh, so I'm just going to fake it, uh, reading these names. I'm, I have no balance. I'm falling over, which is great for my busted ankle. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh my, all of this compounded. <laughs> oh, wow. It was amazing. So like we had to like go down this like little tiny hill to go and talk to see if somebody, uh, in like one of the little remote houses had seen the trigger man or whatever. Um, because of course I'm sleeping on my rooftop, but the, uh, which is what everybody was, um, always, always, but it was always three guys, dish dashes, average height, red Toyota, but yeah. the, uh, AK 47s, I don't know the, um, uh, oh, okay. they're sleeping. No, they're sleeping. They're guarding the, they're guarding the crop. They're right. Right. They're, yeah. They're, they're, they're sleeping on their roof because it's too hot inside. Um, so let's go yeah. sleep in 120 degrees. Yeah, right. Exactly. Let's go sleep let's on, go, on a tar roof. On the top of hard rock and cooker. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I just, it was made total sense. So we so we went to go uh, wake him up from his nap. And uh, so we had to go down this little hill and I fall right the hell down this hill uh, on that <laughs> on, on my busted ass ankle. Um, so, you know, uh, my, me and like my extra 70 pounds and like, you know, two weapons and all of this go tumbling down this little hill. Um, uh, and, uh, my partner, my partner really noticed though, that something was wrong when we decided to continue the mission, uh, cause no one had been, as we thought, seriously hurt. Uh, so when the uh quick resp- uh the quick reaction force comes mm-hmm. and uh cordons off the area until like EOD can come and do do all of those things they were like you guys can go and continue doing your checkpoint and meetings and whatever else um and uh, we pull up to someone uh we pull up to the next stopping point and I was like oh are we doing a checkpoint here and my partner uh who had been in the truck behind me at the time comes up and was like uh oh no no this is your dude like you've been talking to him for like three months uh 
And I never wrote a damn thing down because I had like a photographic memory. And I was like, oh, what am I going to talk to him about today? That's cool. <laughs> and he was like, cool, something's wrong. Uh, I guess I'll do this one. Um, I didn't know our interpreter's name. And of course, we weren't wearing name tags. So yep. uh, because, um, you know, we don't want the people that we do yep. arrest knowing who we are. So uh, we uh, so we're talking. So he leads that mission like the rest of the day is a total wash. I have no idea what happened. Um, went back. I think I yelled at my team sergeant because she or my team leader because. My team leader was like, uh, you need to write up the incident report for the IED. And I was like, the chow hall closes in like an hour or something and I'm starving. Yeah. And she was like, no, you need to write this up like right now. There, an IED went off. Like you were hit by an IED. You need to write this up. And I was like, and I yelled at her and I was like, no, I'm hungry. Um, <laughs> so uh, and at that point, my my partner was like, she's been acting real weird all day. Um, <laughs> weirder than normal yeah than like super normal. weird like uh you might want to cut her because like cut her a break on that one like she's been acting real weird all day so they they kind of assumed i was going bananas and um uh but i still went out apparently i only found this out like years later i apparently still went on missions like the next day and the day after because they couldn't get me in to see uh a doctor for like two more days or something even and it was mental health. Um, and you send an interrogator to mental health. Like, we know what to say. Like, what yeah. What am I going to do? Oh, yeah, no, I have no idea who anybody is. I'm starting to lose my vision. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. No, I'm going to be like, no, nah, I'm cool. Um, everything's fine. Um, my unit's driving me bananas. But other than that, <laughs> like, that's fine. Um, they almost made me a night radio operator. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's the only thing that's stressing me out. So, um but yeah, no, I have no idea what really happened in like my life. Uh, I mean, kind of since then, but uh, I only have like little flashes. Yeah, because I was going to say, I mean, yeah. the, the audience just here in this interview and then even, you know, if they go back and listen to your interview on the team house, like you're an articulate, intelligent person, but people don't know until like they read the New York Times piece where you talk about it. This has affected you to this very day, your, oh, yeah. your memory, everything, right? Oh, yeah. So you're. You still having issues? Oh so yeah. How how it had long? been a brain. It, I had actually had a hemorrhage. Uh, oh, I wow. had had a okay. brain hemorrhage. So um, I uh, they ran and they finally figured out that it was a problem because one uh, at this point I'd moved to Germany and one of the uh, okay. one of the neurologists at Launchstuhl in Germany. Okay. had just said like hey these like blast wave injuries are also a problem yeah. and uh these are the symptoms to look for and i happened to go in and uh i was uh a year and a half or two years late for a post-deployment health reassessment um which they're supposed to do every year and i would avoid because every time i went and was like hey these are the things that are wrong they would send me to psych um and if I got a psych diagnosis, I could lose my clearance at the time. Sure. So uh, faked that one too. And then uh, so that, but I go in and I tell this, this physician, the physician's assistant, like, hey, I symptoms like all the way through. Uh, and 
uh, he sent me to this neurologist. He was like, mm, you have everything on the list that she just put out. And um, like losing my vision, like no memory. No, I was losing the ability to speak. Uh, and so I go and I see the neurologist and she was like, okay, you need an MRI. And then I came back and she was like, okay, we're going to send you to Walter Reed. You need to get oh. that vacuumed out of the middle of your dome there. Wow. Um, and, uh, so at that point and before then, uh, because I jump around all the time because, you know, I have a brain injury, whatever, man. <laughs> uh, so they, um, they had done this whole, uh, they had looked at the ankle, um, because I was like, yo, this thing still hurts. Like months later, is it still a sprain? They finally did. So they did an MRI on that and they were like, oh, yeah, no, you uh, you tore some stuff like you tore some ligaments. There's a tendon tear in there. You've got scar tissue. If they would have oh. seen this earlier, would it have had to have been amputated all these years no, later? No, probably not. Wow. That's nah. good. That's got to piss you off to just eh, like, I, what are you going to do? Like, I, I like that's kind of my mentality. Like, uh, yeah. I, I got enough crap to piss me off now that i don't need to be pissed <laughs> off about something from 15 years ago um uh like uh, i i feel like it probably pisses off my mom more than it pisses sure. me off um but uh because yeah like i mean they found it and they were basically like look we could do some surgery like i had chipped a piece out of the bone they were like i don't know where that went like the the whole thing they were like what are you gonna you know i guess we could do some repair work but like it's mostly like it's just healed wrong um and they didn't know about the brain injury so they didn't know about all the nerve damage that was also uh kicking around so i was having problems knowing where the foot was i still had no balance so uh and i was gonna and I was going to go mountain climbing several weeks later. And I was like, hey, can I still climb Kilimanjaro? And they were like, yeah, it's just going to hurt at altitude. So I uh, ended up with frostbite because I had no circulation because of the nerve problems. I can't believe you and, did it. Wow. Oh, yeah. Um, so how, yeah. Ma- how many years was this after when all this, they're, they're starting to piece it all together. How many years or months had it yeah. been since since you left country? So, since, or were you still in? Were you still serving, or were you finally? Oh out? no, I was. I was. I was in for both. So the both of those, I was in. I had. Uh, I got the ankle looked at um, maybe like a couple weeks after we got back because um, okay. I was like, hey, it's it's still bothering me. Uh, they just made me run a PT t- test on it, and I barely passed it. Um, still passed it though. Oh man, and and like the. Uh, the the women like the the old PT test especially like the women we get some time to run our two miles. I don't. I wish I could remember. I pulled it. I don't know. Twenty minutes or something. It was it was not bad. Um, uh, and I just kept waiting for like to hit the next age bracket and get like that extra like thirty seconds. (laughs) Um, I'm like, man, I could almost walk it now. (laughs) So, um. But, uh, and so I'm like, no, it still bothers me. So that was like a month or whatever later. And they were like, oh, we need to like do some physical therapy and stuff like that. But because of the balance and all of those things, I'm still like, I would reach, I, even in the army and wearing a brace and wearing boots and everything, I would still like step down wrong and tear something at least once a year. And then, uh, the, 
Um, and then the brain injury had been, was in, they figured that out. Um, well, it had been about two years since my post-deployment health reassessment, which they're supposed to do annually wow. on the date you come back. So uh, uh, that was, um, I didn't get, I got brain surgery about two and a half years after the blast. Um, but because of the timeline of when I had been reporting symptoms, they sure. were like, oh no, this is what's happening. But uh, they actually didn't make the connection between why I was still having balance problems and all of that and the brain injury. Did they still think it was your ankle? Is that what yeah. they thought it was? Was still okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so they uh, they didn't do uh, that. Nobody made that connection until uh, right before I ended up getting surgery. So okay. uh, which was in 2019. So oh. uh, yeah, you know, it's a little ways after. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. You know. Um, uh, and I just, and again, I just stepped down wrong in 2019 and like I was on a boat and stepped down, ended up tearing, uh, three ligaments and two tendons just from like trying to go throw a banana peel overboard. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) the banana peel also just like, because I fell, like it didn't clear the overboard and like it's stuck on one of those, just hanging there. Oh, that was so depressing. Um, and uh, and I was like, I'm on vacation, and uh, yeah, and but uh, at this point, like I have been in pain for so goddamn long that uh, uh, like between the migraines and and the the leg and all of this stuff, that like even when I I went um, I went to the the VA the next day because we happen to be in the last 24 hours of our vacation. Uh, so I, I, we land back in New York. I go to, I go, I'm like, I'm going to walk over to the VA. Um, it's a couple blocks from my, my apartment. And uh, they, and I walk in and they look at the size of my friggin' ankle and they were like, how did you get here? And I was like, ah, I walked like five blocks. It's like a pain level three because everything sucks in like my life and my body. And they were like, uh, yeah, you should not be walking on this. Uh, there's like nothing attaching it to your leg at this point. The way you described it to yeah. me and Chris would appreciate it because Chris is a movie guy. I'll let you tell it. No, but- go ahead. No, you were saying it was like that. I don't even remember the character, but you said it was like the character in Mr. Deeds who has like the yes. leg that. You oh, know. yes. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> like, you can hit it with a hammer. Um, yeah. Saving people in frostbit with, because there's all frostbit. And, yeah. And yeah. Ice yeah. And the legs. Black toe. No, no, yeah. Don't give old me a Blackfoot. Black yeah. Yeah. No, my. Uh, 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 like oh, every time awesome. I go into cold weather, like one of my, one of my buddies will be like, he'd be like, you need to take a picture of like the black, they actually called me the black toe. Yeah. Like Blackfoot and black toe. Uh, cause one cause at the frostbite had gotten infected. Oh, my life is like a mess. So, um, but this, uh, so I had like half of my foot was like pins and needles all the time. And half of my foot was totally numb. So, um, so that's great for balance too. And then, uh, so finally, I, uh, and the VA, of course, uh, because I mean, it's policy and it's a good policy. Like we can't, we're not just going to chop it off right away. We're like, you need to do other yeah. surgeries. Like it has to be a last resort. Um, 
but at this point it's been like 14 years of just constant like i i had like a collection of those like cam boots the 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 um, yeah. lovely ones the stabilizing boots that they put when you when you break something um it was like my winter wear at that point and so i <laughs> was like forget this I'm, I'm out um and i was like i'm gonna just get a second opinion uh from from this other doctor and he was like yeah if you do surgery because of all the nerve problems that you're having and all of this other stuff you're probably going to need surgery like every couple years because something else is going to tear. You're going to, you're going to do something again. That's not going to get fixed. Uh, so the alternative is you can just chop it off. And um, I was like, Hmm, tell me more. Uh, because at that point I was just so frustrated with sure. like that perpetual pain level of, to me, a three, which apparently is higher to others. Hmm. Uh, that, um, that, that's just how it ended up. Um, and I was like, tell me more. And then he was like, oh, and I do this thing called osseointegration. So I can insert a rod into your bone and then we can just like screw on a different attachment at the bottom. And, and I was like, no, that's cool. Um, actually the EOD, the British, uh, explosives guy had, uh, had told me about osseointegration. And so that's where, uh, um, and he was like, no, if you have to get something cut off, I strongly recommend this because it's, you know, you don't get the phantom pains. You don't get the, the like, sores from having a, a, um, a socket. Yeah. yeah so were you, were you finding yourself, like, even just becoming more more and more depressed? I mean, from what I'm hearing oh, yeah. is that is, I'm glad you did it that way because it sounds like you would have just kept getting mentally and emotionally worse, which you cover that up. And all of us, you know, some more than others have been where they covered up with, now we're covering up with medication, not the right medication. Sometimes right. medication you can buy in the street corner and alcohol. And I mean, were you finding yourself going down that route too? It sounds like you were. Which, I, which... I am uh, not, uh, I, I've, I, I am one of the very few people who have actually never done drugs, but I, um, like at all, even no, I, wow. not at all. Cause I wanted to be an astronaut. So I was, and I was a giant <laughs> nerd, like, come on. Um, so, uh, uh, but the, um, uh, and I just, and I didn't drink a lot because the way that it affects my, okay. uh, like my TBI, uh, I yeah. get like, okay. uh, and that's why it was actually funny on the team house thing, because like I can drink like uh, I can drink like a lot without getting drunk. And then as soon as I do, I just like go to sleep. <laughs> so like so it's not that fun. Um, gotcha. But uh, I'm like that, it, too. But it's because I'm old as shit. Yeah. That's <laughs> but it does mean I can also like drink Jack Murphy under the table because <laughs> like he's like getting drunk. And I was like, I don't know, man, I've had like half a bottle of rum. <laughs> I don't feel anything yet, so so sucks to be you, pal. Um, yeah, but uh, yes, yeah, so um, but I was uh, I was depressed, and I did not have any outlets. Uh, sure. I was uh, I definitely went through a period where I I never I was not actively suicidal, but okay. like if I was crossing the street and the care. M15 exactly. happened to be coming. And I didn't see it uh, like, oh, well, like passively. Yeah, just apathetic. 
just oh, I get you. Yeah. Lost three three buddies that way, and it's all motorcycles going 180 miles an hour. Yeah. And well, if I hit something, I hit something, or if somebody pulls out in front, I and no, I mean, and yeah. that's that's people think that's no, that's real. That's just yeah. You're it's killing just like yourself, an apathy. But, yeah. It's yeah. just this yeah. like I don't really care. So like I'll do dumb stuff, or like I'll I'll just take risks that are take totally risks. unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. And um, uh, so uh, the and a lot of that was uh, both PTSD and sure. uh, the just the constant level of pain that I was Man. in. So, yeah, I can't yeah. even imagine just being in pain for that many years. No, I, I'm going to go see after about, you said 14 years. No, I, 14 hours. I'm sorry. I'm a puss. I don't, I'm, I'm going to the doctor. <laughs> 14 hours. Now, fuck You're this. rolling something's, out your PT mat. Exactly. Rolling out my Something's wrong with yeah. my fucking foot. Make Fix this now. Mm -hmm. I'm tired of this shit. Yeah. yeah. I, and the yeah. thing with this show, I mean, we really do like to highlight inspirational stories. And I think yours is an unlikely inspirational story because it, you amputating the leg was actually a positive change in your yeah. life. And now you're able to walk around no issue. I mean, when I first met you, honestly, you were in long pants. You had the uh, sandal on. I really didn't notice it. I wouldn't have known that that you were an amputee. And actually, at first, because of the size of it, I figured it was just the foot, not, you know, a significant portion of the leg. Yeah. And what we're doing now with prosthetics, as you said, with 3D printing, it's really amazing and miraculous. So, I mean, it's incredible to see you. And same thing with the TBI. Although it affects you, speaking with you, I would have no idea. Um so I think it's a great inspirational yeah. story. That was none other than Sergeant First Class Ilana Duffy. This next excerpt is from one of our very early episodes, episode four. This is Pat Smith, the mother of Sean Smith, who was there during the attack in Benghazi, who we lost on that day. And uh, yeah, we get into some, uh, some happier times, though, with her son seeing uh, Sean in Africa and seeing lions and all different types of stuff like that. So check it out, Pat Smith. Do, do you that miss so cool. Do you miss being able to go all over the world with your son? Yeah, of course I do. But yeah. as like I said, I went to South Africa when the baby was first baby was born. Wow. Then I went to oh, that was wonderful. But it oh, took so long to get there. Well, did you, Johannes, did you go to Johannesburg, Durban? Did you go down to Cape Town? I'm sure you went to Cape Town. There's, I've worked in South Africa. For South time Africa was, what was that, Johannesburg? Johannesburg, yeah, I think that's where, yeah. Oh, that's, that's where it was. And and I went on a safari. Oh. Sean took me on a safari over there. We, we were going in the car, and I was within 10 feet of a lion just laying there. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome I've you know got what, a picture Pat, of me with lions crawling on top little baby lions crawling on top of me you know what Pat, I said nobody I'm, else has that you gotta nope, send that to us we'll, we'll put that up on uh, on our Instagram you, you got you gotta send that and you know one thing too is that honestly Pat I know your spunkiness I know your feistiness I know you're tough so if you and a lion got in a fight I would I don't know I might put my money on you. You're pretty. You're pretty tough. I just give that lion a run for its money. So I wouldn't be too worried about that. Watching lions. Well, the lion that I saw, he was about ten feet away from me, and they said, "Don't get out of the car." I said, "You betcha, I'm not going to get out of the car. I'm no lion breakfast." Oh my god, we. I'd I'd love to see the little cub pictures that's still one thing on my bucket list that i have not done yet is is going to safari i'd love to go and it's going to happen oh that was great that was oh. so great you saw you saw the animals running around right right there 
right there. It would be cool for you to go at this point, Chris, because like I know at this point you've pretty much sworn off doing any more contracting or anything yeah, like that. Definitely. So I feel like for you just to go with Tanya, your wife, and your kids would probably be an awesome experience and not have to worry about anything else yeah. just as a fun vacation. I, no, you're right, bro. I'm, 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 I'm this, everything we do now, like we're doing now, me talking to Pat right now and Ian, Ian running the podcast and all of us talking together. This is, this is just, this is gravy. This is all just, okay, this is gravy now. Let's just have some fun in life. And, and with the South Africa, I always want to know about the safaris. Cause I just, I don't, cause Pat's right. How long, where'd you have to fly into? Did you have to fly into like to, to London and then fly down to South Africa or did you have to connect twice? Cause uh, I hear the flight is a bear just to try to get there. It's just unbelievable. It was, it was terrible. Uh, I think it was London that we went into. We had to fly to London and yeah. go there. But and that's forever. And that is such a oh, long Switzerland. Time. Don says it was Switzerland. Oh my, that's even, oh, and that's just, it's hours and hours. So if we go, that's, it's gotta be worth it. And, but I, oh, it's I've worth heard, it. well then I'm going, I'm sold. Pat, I'm sold. When I go to South Africa. It's worth it. It's absolutely <laughs> worth it. Just don't let the kids out of the car. Don't, hopefully I'm, I am a very protective father. The kids ain't getting out. I'm not getting out of the car. I see a lion there 10 feet. No. Yeah, we'll, we'll there was a right bunch here. of them. There wasn't just one. There was a whole bunch of them. There was about eight of them laying around. And the lions, which is funny, they, they the big big manes on them and everything, oh. they lay on their back to show off their masculinity. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that was none other than Pat Smith. Rest in peace, of course, to Sean Smith, great hearing more about her son, a guy that we've always uh, recognized here on this show uh, as one of those heroes of Benghazi, but uh, someone we didn't really know much about and we got to learn more about through his mother, Pat Smith. We have Jade Strzok coming on next, competitive shooter, actress, model. Uh, but before we get to her, I have to say she was uh, on her episode, if you listen back to it, very impressed that we had a night vision sponsor and it gave us a little bit of credit in her eyes, I think. So, uh, yeah, we're very proud to be sponsored by Photonis Defense, the global leader in night vision solutions, providing more high quality night vision capabilities than anyone. Hunters, shooters, boaters, and outdoor enthusiasts rely on Photonis Defense Systems to make their adventures safer and more successful. Military, law enforcement, and public safety end users utilize Photonis Defense Solutions to give them the edge at night in tactical situations and rescue operations. Photonis Defense is now offering state-of-the-art night vision systems from the PD-Pro B 16mm binocular and the PD-Pro M 16mm monocular to the PD-Pro-Q panoramic night vision system, customers from all over are excited about these new, smaller, lighter NVGs. You have got to see these things to really experience how much smaller and lighter they are than anything else you have previously used. If you happen to be going to SHOT Show, then you are in luck if you want to see this up close and personal because they're going to be at booth 41326. Write it down. Take note of it if you're going booth 41326, where they'll also be doing a giveaway for the PD Pro 16B binocular NBG. So cool. And uh, I, I'm still, I think Chris is still on the fence of if he's definitely going to SHOT Show. Hopefully he is. I can tell you this, I will be at the booth hanging out with the guys from Photonis. So if you stop by there 
and uh, you want to check it out, I'll have some Battle Line stickers, and uh, I'll be hanging out with Phil Otto and the team at Photonist Defense. So we hope to see you there. But visit photonistdefense.com for more information or look for Photonist Defense product options from your night vision dealer. Once again, guys, photonistdefense.com. Check it out now. P-H-O-T-O-N-I-S-D-E-F-E-N-S-E.com. Link is right there in the description. And of course, we've got to show some love to the greatest ammo manufacturer on the planet. Fort Scott Munitions is a manufacturer of multi-federal patented solid copper and brass CNC spun ammunition that is designed to tumble upon impact in soft tissue, leaving devastating wound channels for faster bleed out and quicker incapacitation. This ammunition was originally developed to innovate and improve on the standard of military-grade ammunition design. It was found that not only did the TUI ammunition outperform competitors in the self-defense industry, but it quickly became apparent that it would be a top contender for hunters alike. With the ammunition being CNC spun, the tolerances are some of the tightest on the market, ensuring that you receive the same results with each pull of the trigger. Fort Scott Munitions is available throughout privately owned businesses in all 50 states. Just click on the dealer locator on the website and you'll find one right by you, a dealer right by you. If you, you uh, check your uh, your zip code into there or your city, state, it'll be right there. FortScottMunitions.com. Use the exclusive promo code BATTLELINE for 15% off your order. Only available to listeners of the Battleline podcast. They've also got great merch available, uh, so check them out. You're going to love them. Fort Scott Munitions is a proud supporter of Chris Peranto, Battleline Tactical, and the Battleline podcast. Once again, fortscottmunitions.com, and use the promo code BATTLELINE. And they have plenty of uh, after-Christmas sales going on, so just sign up for their mailing list, and you're going to see a lot of good stuff that you're going to want to pick up. Trust me, if you're a shooter... If you're a hunter, you cannot go wrong with Fort Scott Munitions. And uh, with that, with all that talk about shooting, let's get in to someone who knows quite a lot about shooting and is a competitive shooter. Jade Struck, this is an excerpt from episode 95. Being a woman, wanting to go into the service, deciding against it, but going into law enforcement, I see uh, I have a lot of issues I feel a personal um, sadness for people, especially in law enforcement, that don't value their physical fitness because it is going to change the tides for whatever it is. Same with competition yeah. shooting. It's like yeah. everybody in competition shooting, There's, I think there's like, well, now we've got the tactical games, which I love. I love that there's this new niche. But before, when I was like 18, 19, really extremely into competition, everybody was out of shape and fat and and completely not putting any time into their physical fitness. And I'm sitting there thinking like, you know, if you guys just ran a little bit, you know, like it would significantly better your chances of winning. And yet nobody's putting that time. I mean, you don't even have to lift your finger, like uh, lift up a pistol. You don't even have to, like, this is something that you can work on completely off of the range and yet nobody's doing it. Why? And then when I look at, you know, the, the physical uh, test in the, in the services yeah. for women, why are we changing them? Because I compete against men in, in shooting competitions. Um, the, of course, there's women's division, but that's not really what I'm too interested in. It's always nice to beat women, but like when they're your, in, when you're in competition against them. But I was always wondering, where do I line up against the men? Like how many men did I beat? Because just because 
I'm not as physically dominant doesn't mean that I can't still whoop ass, right? Sure, yeah. And it's taken years for me to get my pull-ups uh, down. Like it took me three and a half years just to freaking actually go from a hang to a pull, right? And then it took me an extra two to actually get to 10, but it took time yeah. and dedication. But you did so, it, but you did yeah. it. You and, got it. And so I think that that's what's required of us in, in whatever it is that we're going after in life is like, well, are you rising to that occasion? Are you putting in that time? I don't think that there should be any free lunches and there's not really in the competition of life. There are none, you know, you can't just be giving out passes because people want them. That doesn't build hardship and endurance and, you know, worth. And so I don't think that that should be a thing that's going on. You know, I think that if you want to go and run and gun and be amongst the best of the best, then you should absolutely be, be the best yep, of the best the, to that standard equality is not just equality when we want it to be if you're going to be have if you're going to preach equality it's got to be across the board and that's what yeah. I, so i when people would ask me when, when women started to go to ranger school and then i think women start to go to buds now and now people ask me do you do you care do, does that bother you i said as long as the standards are held the same then no i don't care if they can make the standards i don't give two shits right it's that the problem is is that the standards start to get lowered and then they start to get lowered for everybody. Then it's just like, and then now that's what bothers me. And and, I, and that's where I like what you're saying. Equality, regardless, I, I may have to work a little bit harder. Well, so die. I'm five, nine, 160 pounds. I'm not a big guy. I have to work yeah. a little harder to get sometimes to get a little stronger to carry. You're, you're not, pounds. you're not Rudy Reyes. I'm not Rudy Reyes. <laughs> I, I got, I got to, I got to work. I, Rudy works. <laughs> Rudy works his ass off too. But you know, you do have to put a little bit more effort into it. I, I do have to run seven, eight miles and then go work out after it. But that's what I have to do. And I've accepted that. And, to, and you to love be it. Honest. And I love it. Now it's, it's lifestyle now. I love it. Yeah. I, 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 mm-hmm. If I miss it, if I miss a day like yesterday, I, I'm a, I have to go work out twice a day because I had to be driving in a car all day yesterday. But the bottom line mm-hmm. is that is that we all want this equality, but we don't want to have to work to get to that equality. So if right. we can't work at it and it's going to be too hard, well, then we're just going to lower the standards. Well, then it's not equality anymore. Well, and then what's that going to say about your personal integrity of your sense of self, right? Yeah. Like, um, like what that comes down to me is like identity, right? So I identify with having to have worked my fucking ass off to be able to do pull-ups. Like, feels good. That's you, who I am. Accomplished, yeah, yeah, yeah. And still, it's not enough. But because of that, it's will never be enough. You know, um, I never grew up with my dad. I was raised by you know, a man's man who really was like raising three girls, like they're boys. I mean, <laughs> shit, like, you know, I mean, just beating each other up in school and, you know, getting suspended <laughs> at the same time. We're like, yeah, let's go. Um, but you know, like that, his way of thinking, which was, you know, if you want and my mom too, you know, my mom is a firefighter. I said your mom's pretty much a badass too. <laughs> she is a badass and she's got her things, but she's so rad. And and she wanted to go into the Marine Corps. And my grandpa was like, no. And so she's like, okay, well then fuck this. I'm going to go be a firefighter. She didn't tell anybody except for my dad who they had met and they were seeing each other or whatever. And so um, my sister, my older sister did something similar where she up and joined the Marine Corps and didn't tell anybody until a week before she had to go to boot. And, you know, they, they developed this identity in their children that if you want something, you can go do it, but you have to work your ass off. And if somebody tells you, no, you don't have to listen to them, but you do have to pay the price for that. You know, some great advice and words of wisdom there from Jade struck. 
Enjoyed having her on back on episode 95, if you want to check that out in its entirety. Great episode. Uh, This next one is Gold Star mother Cheryl Doltz. You probably heard about her son Ryan Doltz from the Newsmax special. Uh, Well, really, it was originally just, uh, it was recorded independently, and then Newsmax picked it up, but uh, hosted by Chris Peranto, and you may have seen it on there. So this is the backstory of her son, Ryan Doltz, and uh, yeah, from basically birth up until joining the military and all that good stuff. This is from episode 102, Cheryl Doltz. He was persistent from the day he was born, because he was born two months early. And in 1978, a preemie, you know, it was very questionable whether or not they would survive. And they um, were just starting a neonatal unit at St. Barnabas Hospital where he was born. He, they, I asked the doctors what chance he would have of surviving when I was in labor. And they told me maybe 30% at most. Because wow. Wow. he'd probably weigh between two, you know, between one and a half to three pounds. He weighed five and a quarter pounds. And they told me he would be in the NICU at least two months. He was there 11 days and they sent him home. That he was, he was determined even then. Um, He was a handful is the best way to put it. Um, He, when he was little, had a problem with his one foot turning in. So he had to wear, he used to put a bar special shoes with a bar and it tilt turned his foot out so that he had to keep it on 23 hours a day. He learned to walk. He learned to go up and down stairs with this bar. He could swing it out of the crib. He knew he got enough momentum that if he swung it up, he went right over and out. He was all over the place, but a year later it was corrected. He didn't have that problem again. Um, he played football and baseball in high school. Well, actually he started football when he was in about third grade, I think. Um, he had tried soccer. That wasn't his thing, but football, he loved football and uh, played baseball for a while in high school. He was six, six, so he could have played basketball, but that he wasn't interested. He wanted something where he actually got to hit people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The kid, he and his brother played war with all the kids in the neighborhood and all he ever wanted to be was a soldier. When he was a junior in high school, he had the opportunity to go to football camp at Auburn university. And um, I can't remember the name of the coach right offhand, but Oh, Terry Bowden. That's who it was. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. He had a picture of Ryan standing next to him and Ryan's about two feet taller than he is. Um, <laughs> They teased him at the camp, and my daughter was the one who took him down because I wasn't able to get off from school. She said, she called me, she goes, he's the smallest person here, and he was 6'6 and weighed about 250. She said, there are kids coming in who are freshmen in high school who weigh 350 pounds. Jeez. And and the coaches even said to him, um, are you sure you shouldn't be at kicker's camp? You're awfully small because he played defense. He was a nose guard. Wow. And so he decided to try. He went over to practice with the offense and see if that would be better. And there was one coach he was so impressed with. He could spit tobacco out of either side of his mouth. <laughs> and after they were doing some drills, 
he made a comment to Ryan, and I'm not going to give you the whole comment because you'd have to delete it. He said, "Son, <laughs> you're slower than steam off cow. <laughs> and uh, he remembered that. But and by the way, you could say whatever you want here. We're not, uh, we don't have to cut anything out. <laughs> he said, slower than steam off cow shit. <laughs> There you go. This isn't Newsmax. We can say whatever. <laughs> Ryan thought that was cool. You know, and he knew it. He was not a good runner, but he could, if he was given an objective, he could take out whoever that person was. And uh, so he wanted to go to Auburn. He would have to be a walk on because they told them, we don't recruit in the North. You don't play real football. Yeah. This, no, I, it, and we don't. Yeah, yep. Nothing like. You know, they have stadiums for the high school. Yeah, yeah. Even as a, when I was a kid in the 60s, we had a huge stadium with lights at my high school. But it's different up here. And so he would have to be a walk-on. Well, then he went to a college fair and met a, a young man from VMI. And he said, you know, I really want to, I want to check it out. And I'm like, oh, Ryan, I don't think so. <laughs> You're not real good at following rules and regulations and that sort of thing. I don't know that VMI would, and you're going to have to take a foreign language. And he was horrible at foreign languages. And so I, the, the catalog came and I pitched it. And <laughs> That's dirty. <laughs> I, I said, you know, you can, he had to have two years of a foreign language. I said, you will never pass. Never. Because you can't get extra help like you could in high school just to barely get through one year of Spanish. So he, because uh, he's like me, he just doesn't hear the sounds. My daughter, we went to France and my daughter made fun of the few words I could say. She told me to keep my mouth shut because it was going to get me in trouble. <laughs> but anyway, back to Ryan. He um, He decided he wanted to go to this dinner they were having for prospective cadets and the alumni association was holding it. So we went and they seated him with the football coach from VMI and who was a very nice gentleman. It was very interesting. He explained to him how we have peanut butter on the tables. That is a condiment for you. You're expected to eat at least half a jar a day because you need to bulk up a little bit. Now two fifty wasn't enough and they had two cadets there and so he signed up for what uh, they call, um, it's a weekend when they can come and spend the weekend in the barracks with the cadets. And um, he went down and it was in the middle of the winter. It was horrible weather, December. My daughter drove him down because again, it was a Friday. I could not take off from school. And she said, mom, the place looks like a prison. And it does. And in fact, the barracks were used in a film years ago as a prison. It was a Civil War film, and it was the prison. He loved every minute of it. Um, I don't know who they put him with, but the cadets that he was with showed him all how you bend the rules, you don't break them. You know, it's, sure, yeah. it's fun it can be. Yeah. And he came home and that was the only place he wanted to go. That was it. That's where he wanted to go. And he was accepted there. He was also accepted at the Citadel. And I was kind of glad he did not go there because the Citadel 
that was the first year they had women there. And there was so much media of that that that. really wasn't a good situation. And they only brought in one woman. Ryan's second class year was when women came to VMI, but they brought in a number of women. Plus they brought in women officers from other military academies, uh, from um, Virginia Tech, from Texas A&M, so that the women cadets who were rats did not feel isolated. There were officers they could go to to talk to. And uh, he didn't like it. <laughs> he liked the old war that was all male. But he got used to it. And uh, he he's, was class of 2000, but he didn't graduate till 2002. Um, he started out as a biology major. And after one semester, decided to switch to physics because his dyke, his mentor, Joe Claypatch, who was the drum major of the band, was a physics major. And he wanted to be just like Joe. So that was two and a half years of I will take everything twice (laughs) because (laughs) physics was not his thing. And finally, Joe sat him down and said, look, do you want to graduate or do you want to study physics? He said, well, I want to graduate. Hmm. He said, well, then switch to either business or history, and then you'll graduate. So he switched to history and uh, with a minor in business, and that's the minor in business is what helped him graduate. He should have been a business major all along because all of those macroeconomics and microeconomics, he thought they were easy. Statistics, there's nothing to it. You know, whether other people are having a horrible time, he thought that was a breeze. I think that's one of the interesting things about when you graduate high school is that at high school, it's like so regimented. And then in college and all the, in higher education, you kind of thrive in these areas that you didn't learn about. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, he played football for about a month and then he got mono because sweat parties, they called them where they took a certain number of cadets into a room with a light, and that's about it. And they worked them out for 20 minutes. And when they got hot, they took, gave them a cup of water and passed it around to all of them. And they all came down with mono. And the way it was there, you still had to go to class and you still had to do your work. Wow. You, you went to the post hospital. That's where you slept. But you yeah. still had to do your work. You know, there was no taking a month off to get over it. But that meant there was no football. And there was also no remote learning then. Like you couldn't hop on this thing like we are now, you know, so. You didn't have a computer. And uh, in fact, you know, it was, I don't think they had the internet even when he graduated. <laughs> they had computers, but I'm not sure they were totally yeah, up with the internet. That um, he got better and then discovered rugby and liked it because it was football without pads and he was the one that they would lift up in the air by his pants. Uh, you know, it's like I watched one game at West point and I had never seen a rugby game. I knew nothing about rugby and I saw them putting tape around his head. Like <laughs> figure out why. And one of the mothers said, that's so nobody pulls his ears off. <laughs> I was like, oh, Okay. <laughs> Because <laughs> apparently they grab whatever they can get. And uh, he loved it. 
just absolutely loved it. Did, did, and, when did when did he get? Because did he play the tuba at VMI as well? Didn't he get into that as well? He was in the high school band. He played tuba and um, played in the regimental band at VMI. And his second class year, he spent a lot of time conducting the pep band at basketball games because the drum major would say, oh, you know, I've got something I have to do. Can would Ryan, would you take over and conduct the band? And they get their rings in their second class year. And that he would get their attention by banging his ring on the railing and it would make a lot of noise. And that's how, and he loved to do that. They were all, he was always banging that ring on something. Uh, but he loved, he just loved VMI, everything about it. At the end of his second class year though, he had not met the 24 hour rule. You must complete 24 credits within a year because he had to go to basic training for the national guard. He had joined the national guard at the end of his third class year, his uh, sophomore year. And he had one year till he had to go through basic and he hadn't done it yet. So he had to do it that summer. Well, that meant that he couldn't come back to VMI at the end of the summer. So for one year, he went to Fairleigh Dickinson university here in New Jersey and did so well. He was on the Dean's list here where at VMI, he was just barely getting by, but he was on the Dean's list and they wanted him to be in their honors program. And he said, thank you, but I want to go back to VMI and get that big diploma. Cause it's actually a sheepskin. It's huge. I didn't know that. I, oh, yeah. wow. You can get the regular one, or we figured after he, it took him six years to finally yeah. get, he was getting the big one. Yeah. Uh, that he, uh, I worked with his advisor, because at that point he had switched to history. And I had worked with Colonel Davis to set up the classes that he should take here. And then he um, went back and did his last year at VMI and actually graduated in 2002. So he was always considered a member of the class of 2000. Because whichever class you matriculate with, that's the class you are always a member of, no matter when you graduate. Um, but he was, you know, he loved VMI. He loved being in the National Guard down there. And as soon as he graduated, he was deployed as part of Operation Noble Eagle in Maryland. Um, we don't realize, but we have chemical weapons here. And we are testing chemical weapons and devising things all the time. And his unit was assigned to guard our chemical weapons, wherever, whatever you call it. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the few places where you are allowed, you are authorized to shoot anyone who comes near the fence. He said, however, in that year, all he saw was a couple of rabbits that came near the fence. <laughs> but in the middle of the night, you'd be in the guard tower and a convoy would come up and they would get out of their cars and you would be pointing your guns at them and they would point their guns at you. And then they would bring something in, go back to a building and be there a little while and then leave again. He said, I didn't want to know what they had in those trucks. Um but uh, when he finished, he was going through OCS while he was doing that. And right before the physical test, 
did playing some game or something or other hurt his leg and wasn't able to, to uh, run, so he couldn't do the test. Transferred back up here because when the deployment was over, there were no jobs in Virginia. His unit was from Martinsville. There was nothing available. Came back up here and went to work um, for a company called More Trench American. They're the company that built the slurry wall for the World Trade Center. And they hired him first just as a part-time to fill in on something. But then he did such a good job, they made it a permanent job. And they call, he was a cost engineer. It was also his job to go with the engineers, who sometimes are not that big. You know, they're, they're engineers. And he was almost like a bodyguard when they had to go and deal with the uh, unions in New York for different jobs. His job was just to stand there and look scared. Um, And he could do that quite well. Uh, My students used to refer to Ryan and Greg as the funny one and the scary one. Because when Greg came in, Greg would be joking and fooling around and Ryan would come in very seriously, you know, um, asking usually for money, um, or something, and uh, they both had chaperoned class trips, and all the girls wanted to be on Greg's group, <laughs> and Ryan would ask for the worst behave, and he would have them marching in a row. We'd be in New York City, and they would be in a line, one right behind the other, because they were all a little afraid of him. That's <laughs> what he said, line up, one behind the other. They did it. Greg, Greg mentioned something to me, or I think you did as well. Maybe Anne did as well, but you said Greg had all the girls around him, but Ryan was the actual movie star, literally. literally. And if people want to see, I think they could even YouTube that commercial if they want to tell, tell us a little bit about, because I thought that story was, was <laughs> honestly was pretty, pretty, uh, I, not hilarious in a bad way. It was funny right. because of the competition. Well, one of those days, he went to summer school every summer. And Norelco came to VMI. They had come out with a new razor that had a gel in the razor that you put, like a pack that you put in. And so you didn't need shaving cream. It was all in one. It was perfect for someone in the military who had to shave quite often, you know, anyone like that. And they came on campus and said, we're going to give you this razor to try for a few weeks and we'll pay you $75. Well, Ryan's like, I'm in. And at the end of the few weeks, they did focus groups and they videoed them. And Ryan called me and he said, I'm going to get to be in the commercial and they're going to pay me $200. (laughs) Now this is, you know, this is great. And it's during summer school and so forth. A couple of days later, he calls me again. He said, you're never going to believe this. He said, but I'm going to be one of the four featured cadets in the commercial, and they're paying me $2,000. Big money. College money. College money right there. And they were put, and the barracks had no air conditioning. It's August. They were going to put the four cadets in a hotel. They each had their own hotel room. And he was so excited the first day. There was a knock on the door in the morning and the person who was coming to pick him up to take him to the post said, I didn't know what you'd want for breakfast. So I went to McDonald's and I got one of everything. 
Of course, he ate it all. You know, he wasn't going to let it even go to waste. And he thought this was spectacular. Um, because he had a speaking part, Norelco paid for him to be in the Screen Actors Guild. So he's just, yeah, I remember, oh, yeah, that. I remember yeah, that. Screen I, Actors Guild. You know, he had a pension. He had all, you know, <laughs> he was never in anything after that. But, um, and he, he just loved every minute of it. And he's in the final scene. Um, it's he's baby face. He's going over an obstacle course and the um, officer pinches his cheek and says, move it baby face. So Ryan became known as baby face and his unit was in Martinsville, Virginia. There's a NASCAR track there and they would, they always seem to have their, their uh, drills when there was a race going on. And uh, so they would try to get to the race. There was also a Hooters. And all of the waitresses and Hooters knew his name. And when he would walk in, it was, hey, baby face. (laughs) (laughs) Plus, there are several women's, well, they were women's colleges. Now, some of them have uh, become co-ed. But Mary Baldwin and Hollins, he knew girls from all of those schools and his he left his phone with us so after he we were notified that he had died we were trying to contact people and there was just rose girls name after girls name in his phone. <laughs> and luckily they had their own little network because as soon as one found out they contacted everybody else so we didn't have to do that but we laughed we said well at the funeral do we have to set aside one yeah for Hollins, one row for Mary Baldwin, and one row for Hooters. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, listening back to that, Ryan Doltz is truly a hero that needs to be celebrated. His story needs to be heard. So uh, if if you get a chance, definitely watch that special that Chris hosted. Loved learning about Ryan Doltz. And if you want to hear that in its entirety, that was episode 102 with Gold Star Mother, Cheryl Doltz. We're going to wrap it up this one with Holly McKay, great journalist and war reporter. Her book is Only Cry for the Living, Memos from Inside the ISIS Battlefields. The foreword for that book was written by a guy that many of you are familiar with, none other than Jocko Willink. And uh, yeah, she gets into her experiences of being embedded not only with ally groups, but some enemy groups as well. You were embedded with some of the Peshmerga, even to the depth yeah. of, of being. Yeah, that is not easy to do. Um, from experience, I know that's not easy to do. How did you manage that? And I know it took you over time to do it. Explain that. How difficult yeah. that is. So I spent, you know, a lot of time Peshmerga and also Iraqi Army, which was separate. But uh, yeah, you know, I think for me, before I even gone to cover, I'd made some really good connections uh, through mutual friends of mine that had worked uh, in the tech kind of space in in Erbil, and who had connected me with some some very well connected people there. And so I already had the connection a little bit initially before I went. And then you know, and you're back and forth with someone, and and you kind of get to know them, so that when you see them in person for the first time, and the Kurds are extremely welcoming and hospitable people, so they kind of take you in and under their wing. And so from that, it's just it comes down to just you know really vetting your people, networking, and uh, 
and they were always really they always really wanted their story told. They wanted to, um, they wanted a journalist and a writer to come in there and, and see what was happening and see what they were doing. And especially in the early days, so much of what, you know, they were such a ragtag kind of yeah. um, army. You know, they didn't have the equipment. They were fighting, Erbil and Baghdad have notoriously had a lot of conflict. So their side of the story was that Baghdad wasn't giving them their fair share of the weapons and the money that from the budget for that. And by law, they couldn't really get that from other countries because, you know, Iraq as a unified country had to go through Baghdad. So I think Erbil really wanted to show the world what they were doing to fight ISIS, how difficult it was for them. They were bringing their AK-47s from home and were against a, a you know, a, a terrorist group that had, U.S. weapons, yeah. you know, that the yeah. Iraqi army had abandoned. So, yeah, I think they were always really determined to to tell their story. So I never found getting in to be that bad. But, um, but yeah, we definitely had some some interesting experiences and they were always, always extremely respectful, always extremely caring. And, uh, you know, for me as a journalist, the one thing that I always tried to, to also be mindful of is I didn't want them to you know have to take their sights off their fighting in order to protect me so that's always a balance because they're they are so protective to the point where I'm like I don't need five people right now I'm okay but yeah they're really 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 great fighters so I might I spent such a long time since I've been there but did you find that what you're talking about that Iraqis, that Baghdad at all, they you've already said it. To what extent were they not providing the Kurds weapons, the, the stuff they needed? And, and in my opinion, if we gave the Kurds what they needed, they could probably stabilize the region. Uh, right. Uh, we don't. And we don't as well because of, I, I think some of it's Turkey. You can correct me if I'm wrong too, because no. of, but how bad was it? Is it still that bad? We're, 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 they're not getting anything that they need from us. And they're just fighting, really fighting by their by their wits and by their just their strong and their courage more so yeah. than having their armaments. Is it still that bad? And and is there a way we yeah. can fix that? I think over time I definitely noticed it improved. So from the beginning and and from Baghdad's point of view, it was that, you know, their their claim was that they weren't receiving the oil money from that that Kurt, that Erbil owed them. So this is always tip for tat. Um, so yeah, so in the beginning, it was it was terrible, and definitely over time, I did start to notice that I think other countries had started to come in. Uh, I, I think there was an agreement with the U.S. at one point, um, and and the U.S. had definitely amplified its base there. So I think things definitely improved for them, uh, especially toward you know as we're going into that Mosul offensive and and after that. But in the beginning, it was it was super terrible, and the, you know the issue is is that it's very hard for the U.S. or to, for other countries to kind of say too much because it is a sovereign country, mm-hmm. and the way that that Washington often views it is that it, that's up to them to resolve. You know, that's a dis- mm-hmm. it's an internal dispute, and our withstanding policy, as is most of the EU, is that. Um, Iraq is a unified country and, and Kurdistan is semi-autonomous. Obviously, the Kurds would love to, to have their own country. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't see that happening anytime soon. But I do think 
you know, it's a, it's a tough spot, but I think definitely there was a big, you know, there was big red flags in the sense that they, they needed help that they didn't get. And, and what happened, I think in the beginning too, is because the U S had pulled out of Iraq at the end of 2011. So there was this little you know, vacuum and both, both Erbil and Baghdad had to rely on Iran because when ISIS kind of came in and they were both scrambling um, and, uh, and Iran is a, a three hour flight away yeah. and yeah. they were able to come in and provide a lot of the weapons and fighters and assistance and that, that to push ISIS back. And so, you know, even the Kurds were like, well, what are we supposed to do? We had to take Iran's help. The U.S. wasn't here and it would take the U.S. even to kind of, um, you know, mobilize all its assets. That that was going to take some time anyway. And Obama, you know, initially viewed it as the JV team. So I think, you know, that that automatically pushed them a lot closer to Iran, which counters the U.S. Yeah, interest. Yeah. So it just it was a messy situation all around. But people don't realize that. Go, go ahead, Ian. Go, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I, what I, I was just going to say, one of the interesting things, at least from what I know, which is less than you guys. I mean, I haven't been on the ground there, but about our allies there is there's this perception that we should be over there, that they need to form some Jeffersonian democracy and they need to be like America is. But from what I know about a lot of the rebel groups there, whether it's the and I don't know the philosophy of each of them, but whether it's the PKK, the YPJ, why, you know. A lot of them are socialist in nature. They don't share our values, but they do share our values and that they want to eliminate terrorism. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of the, the PKK, it's it's a Marxist, a Marxist ideology. Uh, and a lot of people don't realize that. But, you know, with that comes, uh, you know, a different treatment of women uh, and certain different sort of standards. So you know, there's always going to be a trade off and and we have to decide do we prefer that or do we prefer uh, extreme, you know, Islamic extremists? So there is going to be a trade-off in that. And But I, I just, my, the point I'm making sort of is I think that the the uh, objective should be, like as Chris would say, eliminating the threat more than changing the hearts and minds of these yeah. people to think yeah. exactly like us because yeah. a lot of them don't want what we have. They they want something completely different. They just want to be able to live in somewhat peace. Uh, a peaceful situation yeah. where they're not threatened by ISIS. I think we've moved away from that. I'd like to think we've moved away from that model a lot. I think in the beginning after 9-11, there was this sort of surge of making Afghanistan and then you know, later Iraq, yeah. some kind of liberal democracy. I feel like we've moved away from that. And I definitely know, um, you know, when, when, when Trump came in, his objective, whether people agree or not, was just to eliminate ISIS. It wasn't, to you know, take out Assad. It wasn't to give Kurdistan its own country. It wasn't all these other things. It was very a very one straightforward mandate, and I think that made it easier for a lot of the the generals and the and, and the U.S. side of things on the ground because the mandate was clear, and it wasn't being muddied by those sort of nation hearts and minds kind of objectives. That wasn't on the table then, so that that it made the mission very clear. Well, we've we've learned that uh, hearts and minds doesn't work. I know it doesn't work. I've seen it. It doesn't work. It's just, hey, let's get in yeah. there and do what we need to do and then get the hell out. Somebody hits us, you go and hit the shit out and, and then you get out and, and you let the Barzanis and the Talibanis, whether you agree with them or not, you you got to let them work it out. You got to let them figure it out. And, and I, I lived on Barzani's compound for yeah. over for a year off and on. And 
you're right. He, he he's a he's a pretty hard and you know you know him probably better than I do. He's a pretty hard nosed guy, but he he knows he doesn't want terrorism in his country. And and I saw Erbil, I saw Christians and Muslims and Yazidis. I saw everybody living together. Yes, I saw a a caste system, just like we have low income and and, and high wealthy people. It's the same, but. I really saw it working more or less than yeah. the rest of the countries I've been in. So um, having that hearts and minds mandate that we had when we first started work, I, it, it was a complete mistake. And that's good to hear that we maybe are learning from our mistakes, whether it's as quick as we would have liked it to be, but it's good to hear that. And that's good that, that you saw that there because I, I wasn't able to see that. I still saw the, right. the hearts and minds crap that, that we shouldn't have been doing. I, in, in sure. my opinion. Hey, yeah. Well, you know, you being there and, and you know, you're, we're, we're going to get into your book, but we want to get into, cause we started talking about the hearts and minds, the children that you started to see. And, and, and I guess I want to know your first experience of, of whether it was good or horrible of when you started to see, Hey, the children are the one that are caught in the mess of this and, and where you started to, you know, where, where your book went mm -hmm. as well. Um, yeah. Can you talk about that? And it can be raw as you want it to be, but you can get into it as deep as you want it to be too. And it can be happy or sad. I, I just, I just want to know, because that's something that I, as guys mm -hmm. like myself, we see, but we don't involve with it. We, 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 right. we, we want to help, but in our, our mission is not to help the children, but man, when you see, when you see a young girl or a boy get blown up mm -hmm. off a bomb, that was probably for you. Uh, um, it's, yeah. it, it, it hurts. So, you know, can you talk about that a bit? If you could. absolutely, yeah. So for me, what I really wanted to do in the book is is, and there's definitely a lot of military aspect in the book, but I really wanted to to highlight, you know, a lot of stuff away from, you know, as journalists we call it the bang bang. So I really wanted to, you know, go in and really draw out those human experiences and that human impact of what war is, and obviously children play a big part in that. And, you know, there's just so many different components of it and it's sad and it's just, there's just so many children with, with lost childhoods and it's hard to just kind of, you know, I think there were moments where you become very overwhelmed by it because everybody has problems and everybody, um, and over time I just sort of started to see that they talked about, you know, it was almost like they complained less, but they complained less in the sense that, it was losing hope that anybody was was ever going to be there to kind of help them. And that was always really this, the sad part for me. And, and the Yazidis, I spent a lot of time with them and just sort of the atrocities that the Yazidis girls and the boys endured is, was just really, was, was just shocking to me. Uh, so many of the boys were taken and, um, you know, forced to to convert to Islam and, and become these child soldiers and were held, you know, held as human shields and really put through the most horrific kind of indoctrination. And for the you know, fortunate ones that managed to get us to escape, they were going back to camps without any sort of professional help. There was a situation where, uh, you know, one of these young boys tried to behead his baby sister at a camp because that was the indoctrination that he, he'd been taught. And it was just, it was so difficult for his mother to try to to do that. And the Yazidis were just heartbroken by this idea that for the first time they would would have Yazidi terrorists. And that was just something that was never in in their religion. Yeah. This is a, a religion that predates Christianity and Islam. And you know, for the first time that's what they were dealing with is, is Yazidi terrorists. And then of course the girls and the women 
and there's thousands of them still missing, were all the ones taken as as the sex slaves. And I'm talking girls as young as eight. And you know, again, what what they endured is just it's so it's so hard to to wrap our heads around it that that this was ongoing for so long, and yet we were so incapable of being able to do anything about it. Um, and so that was always really heartbreaking for me. But what was extraordinary is that really for the first time I saw in these communities within the Yazidis is that they were shattering so many of the taboos. So sexual violence being something that was always something you never talked about that happened, something that was, you know, it was too shameful to talk about. And so the women were often the ones that were, were sort of made to feel ashamed of it. But with the Yazidis, it was quite extraordinary in that they were really speaking out about what happened to them and and shattering a lot of those notions. And I just think what they've done for for that issue as a whole and going forward, you know, is going to make a really big difference um, in, in sharing their stories. So, yeah, it's 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 been a journey, and I you you see such incredible resilience at the same time as you see sort of just this this sense of, of sadness that, that you can't do anything about. And there was, there was one particular moment that I, I just remember feeling so helpless because we were I was in I was in the city of Sinjar and it was completely it was completely rubbled and it was just it was basically just a few military people living there. It wasn't safe for anyone to go back. And I, I found this man who'd gone back to his house and he had two young children. And it was so heartbreaking because he was telling me that he had nowhere to live. He couldn't you know, stay at the camp. And his wife had been taken and the, and the children's mother had been taken by by the dash. And he got a call one day that said, you know, if you pay me $10,000, um, I will I will give you your wife back. And this poor farmer with nothing, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, scrounging around for months. And, and, and people are so generous too. And that's the other beautiful thing about about so many of these communities is they'll do whatever they can. They'll give you the clothes off the back to, to try to get a lot of these people back. So eventually he manages to raise the money. He calls the captor back and the captor says, oh, no, the price is doubled now. And he just, you know, threw up his hands and said, I you know, I can't bring my, you know, I can't bring my wife, my children's mother back. I just, just there's no way I can afford it. And, you know, that sense of just, overwhelming helplessness and and I'll never forget that and I think I also felt especially helpless because I knew that there was nothing I could do personally um in terms of giving him money or 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 getting an NGO to give him money either from the US because that would have been classified as funding terrorism so it's some those sort of moments where you really just you can't do anything you know except share the story because we we can't we can't do anything to help them legally. So, yeah, I think it's it's just been heartbreak. It's been a heartbreaking process, and those those kids are still living in camps for the most part. And it's even worse conditions now because ISIS is not the center of attention, and so the funding for that yeah. has has completely dried up. And I think we we move away from things so quickly, and we we sort of forget that they're left to deal with the trauma and the the lack of resources and help. That's, that's what I always say. We go into countries, it's like a party. We go in there, we mess their whole place up, and then we leave and let them clean up the mess. And and it's yeah. it's sad that that still happens. But you're exactly right. I um, did you ever feel threatened when you were there? I mean, because you're you're an American, 
or and or even if they didn't think you were American, you're still you're not Kurd, you're not so, Iraqi. Uh, you're you're trying to get stories out where you know. And one thing terrorists do know, they know propaganda, they know social media, they they know how to paint a picture. They're excellent at painting pictures on social media, and you're painting a different picture than what they're trying to get out there, or or so forth. So. Did you have a price on your head? I never asked you this. I honestly, I wanted to ask you this a few times. And I just forgot. Was there a price on your head, or or was there was there? Uh, hey, let's get that that little damn American that keeps putting out this stuff to the U.S. people and telling the truth. Was there any of that? Because you right. were there during all that time, all that time. For sure. I I mean, no price that I'm aware of, but I <laughs> I um yeah, I think there were definitely and more of my I guess. You know, more hairy experiences were, were generally not in Kurdistan or more in the south of Iraq or, or Baghdad. Um, I, I never felt especially threatened personally by by ISIS, but I do, yeah, I think that there was a couple situations with the Iranian militias. I remember that feeling an extreme sort of sense of anxiety. Um, I remember going to interview one of these militias at, at his house in Baghdad and being with, you know, my fixer, who's sort of what we call um, sort of interpreter, and they kind of help with logistics and, and you know, our driver being kind of at the front. And, and I'm just going in with her, and, and she was wonderful, still a close friend now. And so going to this this militia, Iranian militia guy's house, and and you always have to strike that balance of, you know, I'm there as a journalist, I'm not there to interrogate you, I'm not there to stick it to the man, I'm just simply there to get to get your story. And so I always make that very clear. Um, but I remember in this sort of situation, this this guy starts off with, you know, bragging about the Americans that he'd killed in 2000. And this is, our, this is Iran, Iranian, this is yeah, Iranian. Yeah, okay. yeah. He's, he's Iraqi, but he, um, you know, that he, you know, he's, he answers to Iran essentially. And then, um, yeah, and, and so long story short, so he's sort of bragging about this. And, and I guess for me, I think I was fortunate a little bit in, in being Australian. Uh, I was viewed as a little bit less threatening than perhaps if I had just been American. I think it always made seemed to make a difference when, you know, I spoke and people said, you're Australian. And I yeah said yes. And yeah. even though Australians are completely over there and have been over there since the beginning, they didn't always see that. They just see it as America. Um, so... So that made it a little easier anyway, but yeah, he, he's sort of bringing in more and more and more of these militia guys and they're all coming in and it's just me and it's just me. And next thing I'm sitting in this room with uh, probably about 30 or 40 armed Iranian militias and, you know, they've got the hooker and, you know, and they're all. This really sounds like stuff of a movie. Yeah, and, then, <laughs> and then the next thing, you know, the one guy says, well, I'm taking you to, to meet Qasem Soleimani in Iran. We're going on the private plane. And I, I say, oh, thank you for the offer. I think I'll pass. Um, but you know, it was just one of these situations and then the door was locked and I just looked at my, you know, I had a, a sort of a code word with my fixer and I just said, we, we need to call the driver and we need to leave right now. And she was kind of, you know, smoking the hookah and eating the food and enjoying it. I was like, no, we need to go now. So, um, that was sort of a red flag for me, but it, I think a lot of it, you know, and I got out and I was fine, but a lot of it is, I know it sounds funny, but it's so intuition based there are so many things that i think i really have to tap into this kind of sense of what i know in my gut is going to be a right thing and a wrong thing and yeah my intuition has definitely never led me astray but but it's i've relied on it 
you know, probably more than what most sane people would think, um, you know, is a good thing, but it's, 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 it's hard to explain. And there's something about being, being in that Mesopotamia, this beginning of civilization that it just, there's something different about it where I feel like I can, I can very much connect to, to, to where my mind needs to be and, and, and what is happening that, that I don't experience in a lot of other places. And, and so Iraq's definitely been, been a place for that. But um, it's yeah. romantic. It's, it's very romantic. I loved being, I, I said, <laughs> I've said it myself. I was my best person in the middle East amongst all that craziness. And it just, you just, it feels, I, I you don't feel like I, I feel like Lawrence of Arabia sometimes, but there are times where just, it's like, wow, this is where everything started. This is so beautiful yeah. here. And you do, you feel, you feel, you just feel alive and you do your senses yeah. are up. Granted though, yeah. I don't I don't know how you let yourself get locked in there. But that would have been like a red flag to me. As soon as I heard the click in the lock, okay, it's time for us to climb out the window. It, it's time yeah. For, yeah. To get, get out of there. Well, there you have it. Best of badass female guests, part two. Hope that you enjoyed it. Please support our sponsors. They keep us doing what we do every week. Without them, there is no show, and we only work with companies that put out quality products. So check them out. All those links are right there in the description. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We are falling behind in the ratings. We need your help. Leave us a review right there, a five-star review. It really helps us out. Pick up a shirt. The Battleline Podcast shirt is badass. comes in all different colors. Link is right there in the description. And hey, if you have any questions for the show, as always, hit us up. Podcast at gmail.com. If they're good, we'll get to them on a future episode. And uh, with that, once again, have a great 2022, everyone. Never, ever give up. That's all for this episode of the Battleline Podcast. But we'll be back on Monday with more American Straight Talk. Until then, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Battleline Podcast and on Twitter at Battleline Pod. To sign up for future Battleline tactical courses, go to www.christantoperanto.net. Believe in yourself, face all challenges head on, and as always, never, never quit. quit.